Thank you, church. I sound really loud, Glenn. So we've got some things coming up. Um, on the 27th of this month, we've got our reconciliation service where we meet with the Mosaic Indigenous Church and we uh, not only talk about Reconciliation Week, but we actually try and live it out. So 27th on Sunday, we come together uh, with Mosaic and we worship and we fellowship and we tell stories and we hear some Indigenous language and, and uh, Pastor Keith uh, preaches and shares a message for us and then we have a big old feed out there and it's normally a great day. So you're very welcome on the 27th. Come and uh, be a part of what we're going to do. On the 22nd, which is a Tuesday, it's going to be our final in our three months of prayer, seeking God about uh, direction for our church and where we go in regard to uh, a second service. So that one's going to be a six o'clock. We're going to meet at six o'clock on Tuesday. Kids are welcome. There'll be something to eat and we'll have some worship and we'll pray together uh, and the kids are invited and welcome to that. So that'll be six to 7.30 on Tuesday the 22nd. You're very welcome. There's also prayer this Tuesday at 7.30, which you're very, very welcome to come along and attend to. Um, So that'll be our second last one. So please come, share with us and join with us as we pray and seek God together. So Origins, this is our eight weeks of uh, the book of Genesis and we're having a look at uh, what Genesis meant and what Genesis uh, means for us today. And I wanted to sort of start off a quick review of last week by I'm presenting you a view. Uh, it's not the view. We don't all have to have the same version or view or theology of Genesis. We don't all have to hold the same version or view or theology of Revelation. It's not a deal breaker. It's not the end of the world. You can uh, listen to what I'm saying and disagree and respectfully disagree and I can respectfully disagree and we can all love each other. Doesn't that sound good? I think it sounds fantastic. I love the fact that I'm uh, able to, that you're plastic enough that I'm able to present to you some different views and versions. And uh, if it takes for you, fantastic. If it doesn't, then I'm very happy for you to say that's yours and leave it there. So this is not a the church's view. This is our view for you to consider. And probably one of the most important things that we have to do is to understand how we're reading the text. And this is Walton and he says, the Bible was written for us but not to us. So this is a book, and this book was written to a group of people. And this group of people, the author had a specific intention in mind for them to understand it. Now, we can read it thousands and thousands of years later, but if we read it with a Western, modern, scientific worldview or lens or glasses or however you want to say that, we will miss significant amounts of of intention that the author had for us. So what we're trying to do sort of over this series is take ourselves back as best as we can and think about how the original readers or those who were intended to receive this book, how they would see the world and how they would see the letter. So we talk a lot about the ancient Near East and we talk a lot about kind of what things meant back then and that is grounded and based in 
uh, research and also in archaeology and what's been dug up and, and ancient Near Eastern texts and how they use language and how they thought about things. That's what I'm trying to do is take us back as best as we can into that thinking and then try and read Genesis from that place and see what that God was trying to communicate to the people of the day so that we can take that message and that information and transpose it into life in 2018 here in Bentley. Are you with me? Are you with me? Fantastic. So one of the ways that we do that, I've got a new firmament picture. This is how the ancient Near East saw the world. Okay, so what they believed was that down the bottom here, right down the bottom, there was this chaos creature, and that was generally a big dragon or a serpent. And this dragon lived underneath, right underneath the world. And the whole sort of, everybody was fearful of the dragon. And the dragon would surface, and generally in the oceans and in the waters, the dragon would surface, and then everybody did the best they could to try and make it go away. They were terrified of this chaos creature. Okay, then there was this place, the earth was held up by giant columns, and then there was this place inside the earth called Sheol, and Sheol was kind of like the place of the dead. So everybody, when everybody died, they would go to Sheol and just be. There wasn't really heaven or hell, or none of that is really spoken of very much in the Old Testament, but Sheol is a place. And then the earth had these mountains on either side, these foundations, and then there was everything that we see and do here, And above that is the sky. And then there was this thing called a firmament. And this firmament was what held the waters of the heavens above because the rain comes from above. And so that means there must be a giant tank above the sky. And there was this firmament that held the the rain at bay. And every now and again, the floodgates would open and rain would come. And above, and so inside the firmament was the sun and the moon and the stars and all of those things that you see in the sky. And then above that were all the flood waters. And then up here is where God was. Right above the world is where God lived. An ancient Near Eastern person, this was their cosmology. This is how they viewed the world. So when we read the Bible, this is how people thought. Okay, there's no sun revolving and atmosphere and all those sorts of things. It's this. So everything that's spoken of, this is how everybody views the world. Oceans were frightening places because in the ocean, you were very, very vulnerable to the chaos creature. You were vulnerable to the judgment of the deep and the sea monsters who were all roaming about in the oceans. So sailors are so... Um, so frightened of the ocean and there's all these superstitions attached to it. So that was an ancient Near Eastern cosmology. When we talked last week, we did chapter 1 and we began by speaking about what it was to create. And what we started to learn was creation was not necessarily about the formation of matter as much as it was the assigning of names, of functions. It was an ordering of disorder so there was something there was something and that something wasn't really all that inhabitable and what God did as he spoke into being all the different parts of creation was he brought the disorder into order that's part of what our our little image is over here there's all sorts of things going on and in the middle there's this nicely ordered restrung shape thank you guys you did a great job 
this nicely restrung shape that's in the middle here that comes from all of this chaos that's on the outside. And that's what creation is, is this bringing together, making this inhabitable place habitable. Okay? Walton goes on and he says that the Genesis text is essentially the way in which a family would describe moving into a new house and speaking about making that house into a home. That's what the Genesis text is. It's not about, we don't sort of move into a new house and speak about how we made it our own home. That, if we tried to take that and then understand how they actually built the house, we would be misusing that family text. And that's what he says about Genesis. It's the way in which God made this house into a home. And that's what the Genesis text is. And he says the importance is that the people who, who this book was written to and the original readers, that's what they cared about more than how the matter was created and why. We are science people. We want to know how. We want to know why. We want to know when. We want to make it provable. We want to make it identifiable. They didn't think like that. They didn't care about that. So the text was not written to answer our modern questions. It was written to the people of the original time. Are you with me, church? All right, that's chapter 1. Chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all of their vast array. Join with me, church. Verse 2. But the seventh day God had finished the work he had begun doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on... You get a bit stuck when I stop, don't you? I do enjoy that. So we start having a look at what does it mean to, to say good. So just before God says everything that he made was good. Everything I made was good. First thing we're going to have a look at. And the second thing is why in the heck does God need to rest? Okay? So the first thing we're going to have a look at, good. This blew my brain when I was, when I was researching. Good doesn't mean perfect. Good doesn't mean perfect. Good means fully functional. Good means that everything now is working as it's intended to work. It doesn't mean that it's perfect, but it means that it's working sweetly. It's working perfectly. It's doing everything it was intended to do. That is what good means. Second thing is God resting. So when God rests... Terence Freetham, who's a, an Old Testament commentator, he says that rest is not like rest that we would have where we've been doing a whole heap of things and we're exhausted. He says that rest is far more about God moving into the home that he has made. So resting in the ancient world and resting in the Hebrew text was not about God putting his feet up on the couch and taking a breather because he'd been doing six days of work. Resting is saying it's all done. The house is made. And do you know when you've made your house and it's all in order and you have that first meal of fish and chips on the ground? That's what this is. Cosmic fish and chips on the lounge room floor with the boxes packed away and you can kind of go... God rested. God made his home and his place in the garden which he had created. 
So what that means is, and what that says to us, is that God is now making sacred space. So wherever the presence of God is becomes sacred space. So what he's saying is that the earth now becomes a sacred place because he has brought order, he has brought function, he has named and he's created humanity. Now the earth becomes a sacred place because God is resting there. So it sort of changes everything, doesn't it? So now we kind of take it to that next step. So now we're talking about the the distinctive place of the Garden of Eden. And this garden becomes, in essence, a temple. So Walton speaks about how God is now making a place within a place. And this is the place where he's going to live. And the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament times was a place that had this golden box that was wooden that was overlaid with gold. And in that box, the presence of God or the the robe of God would rest. In the beginning, early, early on, God made himself a garden. And in that garden, he lived. His presence dwelt. In Genesis 3, he's walking in that garden. We don't ever hear about that. In the, in, the, in the tabernacle or the ark. So what we've got is this coming together of the presence of God in this place. We've now got a sacred space, it's a sacred place. And you have a look at the temple. And all throughout the temple, every single part of the temple had a profound and important meaning. And as you would walk through the physical space of the temple, you were walking through a layer of Israel's history, a layer of their story. And as you would go deeper and deeper and deeper into the temple, only certain people were allowed in certain spaces. And what the Garden of Eden is, is essentially God's most holy place. It is the place that in the temple, the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant lived in this place. And in that place, one priest could go in once a year and that was it. No one else was allowed in this space because the presence of God was there. The Garden of Eden, according to Walton, is God's holy of holies. This garden area with fruit trees and rivers and fruitfulness and a land that is flowing, a land that is fully functional. That is the holy of holies. And then in that place, in that holy of holies, God puts people. So we've got this sacred space, we've got this most holy place that God has moved into. Chapter 1 of Genesis 26 and 28 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image. Listen to the language here. In our own likeness, they, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and over all of the wild animals, over all of the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27 of Genesis 1, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. Do you hear the pluralistic language there? God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. As in chapter 1. Now in chapter 2, we're, we're told in two, uh, Genesis 2.7, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. 
So we've been made essentially already, and now there's this second telling. Genesis 2 gives us almost the second account of creation. There is a huge amount of discrepancy around these two accounts. They don't line up, they don't work together, they don't even dovetail together. Uh, theologians are doing themselves brain injuries trying to make these two things fit together, and essentially they just don't. And it doesn't matter. It matters to us because we need things to work as cogs and wheels and we need it all to be spot on and perfect because if there's anything wrong with it, the whole thing's faulty. If you see that as your view of Scripture, then you are going to be reading it with a very narrow lens. Do you remember the ancient Near East did not care about things like we care about things? They didn't care if the two accounts didn't work because one account's telling you one thing and now this account is telling you something else. So let's put aside our Western thinking and let's say what is the text trying to tell us? And what it's telling us is dust is important. Now dust is important because if you've ever been on a farm and you've seen a dead sheep or a dead animal or a dead kangaroo out in the field in a paddock, after they've been there for a while, they start to break down. And when they break down, they literally look like they're made out of dust. So, so what they're trying to tell us is what we were, when we die and when we break down, that stuff in the ancient thinking, that stuff that you're made out of is the earth. And what happens is that stuff, God molds that dirt, that dust together and then he what? He breathes life into it. So they don't care how we were made. They care what we were made out of, which is dust, which is the earth. And then they care about the fact that God breathed life into you. That's what they care about. Because that breath of life, theologians say that breath of life is what reflects the image of God. Not so much our physical appearance, but the fact that the breath of God is in us and animates us. There's something about that that reflects the essence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the, the triune fellowship they live in, that reflects something in us in the way that we interact with each other, in the way that we think, in the way that we create, in the way that we keep on creating and keep on making and keep on naming. Something of the image of God is in that. And that's what Genesis 2 is trying to tell us about us and about how we were made. Genesis 2, 20 to 25. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused, caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. That's not hard, is it? And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the side, uh, closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man says, so this is Adam's first interaction with Eve, okay? So he sees her in all of her fullness and he says, uh, the man said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman. For she was taken out of man. He sees her and falls into poetry at the sight of this woman. That is why man shall leave his father and mother and is united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. So we've got Adam, we've got Eve. 
Okay, so that's Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel number two fresco of Adam and Eve. Okay, I've added the fig leaves there because he leaves nothing to the imagination, does Mr. Michelangelo. Do you see how Adam and Eve, people from the ancient Near East, were blonde-haired and blue-eyed? Do you see that they were very pale skin and they have absolutely no body hair over them at all? Adam and Eve did not look like this in any shape, form or description. Chances are they were dark-skinned. Chances are they had dark hair and very strong facial features. This is a modern Western mindset because this is our ideal. Perfect people are just this. Nobody looks like that, do they? But this was how they imagined holiness to look like, perfection to look like. So what have we got? We've got Adam. Adam's name literally means man or human. Man or human. From Genesis 1 to Genesis chapter 5, pretty much every time through there, Adam is used by the, his name is the definite article. So it's not hey Adam or hey John or hey Boris, it's the Adam. So all the way through chapters 1 through 5, he's known as the man, the human. Adam is not his name. He's simply referred to by his function. And what is he? He's the human. He's the man. So all the way through the Bible, his name is not Adam. Uh, Sorry, from 1 to 5, it's the human. God made the human. God took Eve from the side of the human. Okay, so it's interesting the way that that's set up. And Eve, her name means life. So we understand that. She's able to bring the children. She's able to bring the life. So we've got the man and the life. These two people would not have called each other Adam and Eve. That was not their names. They didn't know each other by those names. Later on in Scripture, it uses Adam, takes the definite article out, and he's called Adam. But early on, chances are they didn't do that. And they certainly weren't speaking to each other in Hebrew either. Because Hebrew came around uh, towards the middle of the second millennia BC. So when these guys were around, they were not speaking Hebrew to each other. We have no idea what they were speaking to each other. And almost certainly they were not calling each other Adam and Eve. Don't even know what language they were speaking. My mind was blown when I read that this week. I put my books down and went, no. Genesis 1, 26 and 28 speaks of God making us. Speaks of, ready for your mind to be blown. God speaks of making us and calling them. There's all this pluralistic language. Walton goes on and says that it's possible that these were not the only two people that were around at the time. These two were different and unique, but there was very possibly others around. So we think about that. Um, Again, this is one of these things that's not the end of the world. It's not something that's a make or break, but it kind of makes a little bit more sense. So in Genesis chapter 4, after Adam and Eve are removed from the garden, there's Cain and Abel and there's the murder. We see that Cain has a wife and we see that Cain gets pushed out again and he's frightened and his fear is that if he goes out into the world someone will kill him if it's only this family who's going to kill him 
And then it says that Cain goes out with his wife and then he forms a city. How does he form a city with just him and his wife? So there's just these things that there's a possibility that these guys were not the only people that were around. But there was something unique and special about them because there was something about the breath of God in them, the reflection of God in them, and that made them unique and special. So Adam, we know, is the human and Eve is life. And then it speaks about Eve's function and Eve's role. So hang with me here because this is dense, but it's well well worth it. So we start looking at the Hebrew word for her and her role. Um, and the word translated as helper. So she was made to be a helper. Uh, and it's translated that way as a helper. So the, the word translated as helper suitable for him is the hebrew word ezer kenegdo okay so ezer is used 24 times in the old testament and only twice does it refer to eve 16 times it refers to god as a helper when a savior uh, when a savior or protector is needed against the enemy so here's this idea that that god is described as a helper so when it talks about helper we're not talking about a second class citizen we're not talking about a tradesman's assistant okay we're not talking about that because god describes himself as a helper the ancient hebrew letters uh were pictures so the letters were pictures and they slowly evolved into the modern hebrew letters that we see today the ancient pictures used for ezra were an eye and a man with a weapon and the idea behind that was that an ezra was a revealer of a man's enemy. So she was part of sort of his team and her role was to spot danger. Her role was to be the eye to see what was going on. You see the irony in chapter 3 when we're going to meet the snake and that's next week. So Ezra is a mighty helper, a protector for her husband, the one who is able to reveal his enemy in times of danger, thus helping to strengthen and protect the marriage. Praise the Lord. So we've not got this idea of this subservient, less than human being. And when it speaks about being made from the rib, almost everybody I read said that was a terrible translation of the Hebrew. This idea of, of rib is actually side. So what it says is that Eve was taken from the side of Adam. So he was cut in half and she came from him. She was half him. We speak about having a better half. So it was, it was literally like that. It was this, she and him were the same. So she wasn't just taken from this tiny little bit of him. She was half of him. Walton goes on to say that this was a, a very difficult, this as a connector was a very difficult word to translate. He said if he was translating it, he would make up his own word because it's not an English one. So he says that to translate as a connector, that she is his counter. She's his counter and she's his partner. So he would make up the word counterpartner, that they were together, equal, doing what it was that they were doing, in tending the garden and being fruitful and multiplying. So for Mother's Day, we're not talking about Eve as this less than creature. She and him were the same, made from his side to work at his side, to be by his side, so as that they were able to care for and work the garden. So let's keep going. So Adam and Eve 
work together as counterpartners in a priestly type of role. So when we think about Adam and Eve, they're in this garden that is good, that is functional, that is fruitful. It's not perfect, but it's good. And then we see them and they are serving in a priestly type role. And I put priestly pictures up there to try and make the point, but it's not priestly like these guys are priestly. Their role is not just away from everybody else and away in a temple. Their priestly role was to, be, to cultivate the ground, to be fruitful, to multiply. Their job, in a sense, was to usher people into this garden, into this presence. Because God's moved in and made his home in this place. And so the idea was that Adam and Eve were the guides to bring people from this fruitful place so that they could experience the presence of God, the knowledge of God, the awareness of God. And the idea was that they would then take something of that out into the world as it grows and grows and grows. So The Jews, the Hebrews, have always been called a chosen people. And the reason they were chosen, Scripture tells us the reason they were chosen, it's not because they were super special, the reason they were chosen was for a task, for an assignment, for a job, for a role. And that role was to be God's ambassadors. Israel was designed to be a nation that showed the world around what it was like to live in the presence of God. And that's what Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is telling us, that God set this place up as the holiest place. And Adam and Eve's role was to look after the garden, tend the garden, be fruitful to multiply, but also to usher other people into the presence of God. And the presence of God is this place of fruitfulness. The presence of God is a place of order. The presence of God is a place without chaos. We have two trees, two power trees. In the middle of the garden, in Genesis 2.9, in the middle of the garden were, were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's two trees. Almost every near uh, eastern ancient myth has got some sort of power tree in it. Almost all of them have got some version of knowledge and some version of life some version of immortality, and some version of a greater awareness. Almost all of them have the same thing. In Eden, so this is a guy called Randy Alcorn, he says, In Eden, the tree appears to have been a source of ongoing physical life. The presence of the tree of life suggests a supernatural provision of life as Adam and Eve ate their fruit the Creator provided. So the idea is uh, that we weren't made immortal. The idea is that the tree of life gave us this ongoing capacity to stay alive if we continue to consume it. So Adam and Eve are told that they're not allowed to eat from which tree? The knowledge tree. But they're not barred from eating the life tree. Okay, so the the idea is that they're able to eat that and maintain their life, but they're not allowed to go to the knowledge tree. Interestingly enough, in Revelation 22, at the end of the Bible, at the end of sort of this broken world and the the renewing of our world, we have a giant tree. And this giant tree has got all this fruit on it. And that fruit is the fruit that heals the nations. And this is the life tree. And heaven's gates open and everybody is welcome to come into this uh, this new Jerusalem or this new garden. And they're able to come in and enjoy Redemption, and they're able to enjoy the life tree, this life that goes on and on 
and on. I'm conscious of time. So we've got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Ancient Near Eastern uh, culture all have these power trees. Okay, And basically... In all of them, except our one, it doesn't say which sort, but in all of them, the trees were either pomegranate trees or date palms. Okay, so pomegranate trees or date palms. There's not an apple in sight. Apple, we love our apples, but there wasn't apples there and then none of that was happening. In every story, it was either a a pomegranate or a date palm. Okay, but now we're stepping into the forbidden tree. So they're not allowed to have this. Why are they not allowed to have this? Our Old Testament uh, scholar Freetham says this, The tree and the command together define the limits of creatureliness. To transgress those limits entails deciding about one's own best interest. To refrain from eating recognizes creaturely limitations and the decisiveness of the will of God to be true human life. What is it? Something about this, this knowledge of good and evil. There's something about discernment. We don't know exactly what it is, but we know that it's something about dis- discernment and something about awareness. And what the Bible is saying is that we were not ready yet to have that. We were not ready for this awareness. And the fact that there were limits put on it and Adam and Eve chose to break the limits instead of saying, do you know what? The limits are there. We'll trust the limits. If they had have trusted the limits, they probably would have been in a better position and more mature and they would have been able to actually enjoy the knowledge and the awareness that's there. Because I think it's there because God wants us to have it. But Adam and Eve were not ready. And that's part of the problem, is that they had limits put on them and they refused to hold and stay within those limits. Now, none of us break the limits, do we? None of us, we say, don't have that 14th piece of cake and we go, of course not, and over we go. We don't do that as people. We're evolved to this point and place where we can live within our limits. Amen? It's still going on, baby, isn't it? It's still going on. There's a limit there. There's a boundary put in place. There's a border put in place. And we go, don't you tell me what to do. Who are you to tell me what to do? That same uh, immaturity is still deep within us. Amen? So wisdom and discernment is about being able to accept our limits and be able to move on. So what does all of this mean? To the best of our understanding, how do we sum up chapter 2 to the best of our understanding? This is a a picture just south of Perth and it's of a a fruitful canola field. It's a stunning, stunning image when you see it on a screen. But the idea is that the presence of God in chapter 2 is about creating this space that is ordered and good. And ordered and good means fully functioning fruitful it's fertile there is rivers the land has got enough water everything works as it's intended to work so think about that for just a minute we used to live in a farming community and farmers work really hard to try and make the land produce they work the ground they try and 
they try and gauge when the weather's going to happen, when frost is going to be, and they do this really difficult science of trying to understand how to force the earth to produce. In the garden, you planted and it grew. In the garden, you weren't fighting weeds. In the garden, you weren't fighting pests and pesticides. You didn't need any of that stuff because as it was intended was what it was. It was ordered. It was fruitful. And God's presence was there. And the idea was that Adam and Eve would live in this place where everything worked as it was meant to work. So we think of paradise and it's sitting by a pool maybe drinking drinks out of a coconut. But paradise or good, is everything just working? Think about that for a minute. So you'd still go out and do stuff, but instead of fighting the world and fighting the earth and push, push, force, force, make, make, weeding, everything's trying to eat your tomatoes, none of that. You put the seed in the ground and it produced fruit. The presence of God was there. Order was there. And our role and our job was to steward, enjoy, and usher other people in. That's what good means. So last week we spoke about order and how order, we tried to combat the chaos that's around. And we spoke about it in terms of it being a very personal thing. Where are the places where we've got disorder? Where are the places where we've got chaos? And we we spent some time inviting God into those places. And that was a very personal thing. This week, it's far more about us as a collective because our role as a collective is still the same. We're still called to do what Adam and Eve did, which is to have the presence of God and to steward and welcome and usher other people into a place of fruitfulness and into a place of order and into a place of the presence of God. And not just me personally, but us as a collective. These are what the churches are called to be. That's what we're called to be. We're called to be a place of God's function, order, and fruitfulness. We're called to be a place where you can come into our presence, whether it's in this building or down the park, doesn't matter. But you come into our presence and you're loved and you're cared for and you're welcomed and you're thought about and you're not just used, but you're part of something and you step in and you enjoy the presence of God. That's what we're called to be as a church. Church is so important because our job, just like Adam and Eve's job, was to show the presence of God around. That's our role now. Our vision as a church is to be a place where you can shelter, find shelter, you can love, you can learn and you can serve. That's what we try and do is create that presence here in this building physically. But that's what we're called to do as a place. So you think about that. You know, the, the book of Acts in the Bible is after Jesus ascends to heaven, the Holy Spirit comes down and we get that presence of God in us. That presence that was in the garden then becomes in us, the Holy Spirit. And our job is then to take that presence and that fruitfulness and that order everywhere we go. And so at work as Christians, our call is to be the best employees that our bosses have ever had. Because our role is to bring order and fruitfulness to everywhere we go. 
Our role as employers, as bosses, is to create the best companies we can, where our, our people are cared for, our products are good. Our call is to go into school and work and home and create order and space and bring other people and usher them into the presence of God. Amen? So the call is not moral perfection. Moral perfection is great. Be moral people. Amen. You know what you shouldn't do. Don't do it. Easy. I don't need to tell you about that. The call is to open and welcome. Yeah? Open and welcome. And that our role as a church is to be a place where people can come in and experience the presence of God. They can meet and encounter God in the way we conduct ourselves, in the way we worship, and in the way we go about life. Let's pray. Lord God, we are humbled and excited by the prospect of understanding more and more what you gave Adam and Eve as a job, understanding more and more what that calls us to be, and understanding more and more our place as a collective, not just as individuals, but as a collective, as a body, the decisions we make, the way our spaces, the way we are as people, the way we welcome others into this place and into this space at all the things we do during the week and on Sunday. Lord, give us an awareness of, of the wonderful responsibility. Give us an awareness of our limits and boundaries and give us the discernment to be able to stay within them. And Lord, I pray and I ask that we are able to take your presence and show people how beautiful life can be with you how ordered life can be, how we can be on the journey towards more and greater order. No one's there, no one's perfect, but the idea is that we step into this place where we know we're forgiven, where we know we're loved, where we know we're wanted, where we know that we're special, where we know that you think of us as special, Lord, and that creates a presence, that creates a space where you can meet people and we can have the joy of welcoming you. Go with us this week. I pray that we take your presence and we steward it, uh, that we steward it well and with passion uh, and with intentionality. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said...